Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland. For innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. People say, do what you want to do, do what you enjoy doing, do what you love to do. And I've never known what that is because that's where my PDA is most debilitating. What I would love to do, what I enjoy to do, my PDA is telling me it feels horrible to do it, so don't do it. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Well, before we begin, I would love to share with you this review from a listener in Sweden named M-U, A-M-E-W, M-U, and then a whole bunch of numbers. Anyway, it's entitled, I'm Not Alone. Thank you for this amazing podcast. In all episodes, I feel seen and heard as if they are all talking about parts of my life. I recognize close to everything, and I finally feel like I'm not a weirdo. I belong somewhere. I'm not alone. This is such a healing feeling, and I'm so grateful for finding this podcast as I was recently diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 42. Well, thank you, and yes, you are definitely not alone. However, if you're anything like me, and honestly most of my guests, you probably actually are a weirdo. But of course, I say let's embrace the weirdo label and wear it with pride. We can all be eccentric, different, and strange together, and I wouldn't have it any other way. 
Speaking of which, if you are a woman or an adult who is socialized as a girl and you have ADHD and you're looking for coaching, support, and connection and friendship, while also developing a greater understanding of who you are and how to best work with your neurodivergent brain, make sure to register for my next round of small group coaching. I have a new session starting in a few weeks, and I would love to have you join us. Let's be weirdos together. Head to womenandadhd.com slash group coaching to find out more and to register. And of course, that link is in the show notes. Okay, here we are at episode 175, in which I interview Connie too. Connie lives in Bradford in Northern England and has spent the last 10 years as a skilled body artist in the medium of natural henna and ethically sourced jagua. She received a dual diagnosis of autism and ADHD about a year ago. Connie was one of my Instagram followers who answered my call for regular guests a few months ago because she definitely didn't see herself as an ADHD success story. She is in the thick of it, so to speak, currently trying to run her creative business while parenting two neurodivergent teens and maintaining her marriage. We talk all about her journey to diagnosis and her experiences with untangling her internalized ableism. And Connie also talks about her experiences with PDA, pathological demand avoidance, or what I prefer, persistent drive for autonomy. We talk about her masking and feeling different in childhood and the pressure she felt to be white passing. And we discuss the pressure to model healthy emotional regulation as parents of neurodivergent teens. So without further ado, here is my interview with Connie. Enjoy. Well, Connie, thank you so much for reaching out. I am super excited. I feel like there's this world that I've been inducted into of henna that I had no idea existed. So I'm excited to kind of pick your brain about that uh, before we get started. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your diagnosis? You were duly diagnosed with ADHD and autism at the same time, correct? Correct, yes. And that was almost a year ago. That's right. Yeah, just under a year ago, I got the Zoom call on the 31st of January last year. So just under one year ago. Yeah, it was, um, I don't know whether it was a shock or a surprise or a, a relief or, or all of those things all at the same time. Yeah, right. All of the above. So what was happening in your own life that led you to pursue this diagnosis and kind of put two and two together for yourself? Oh yeah, well, it was the the put two and two together process spanned a long time. Um, I have two children; they are uh, fourteen and sixteen. And my sixteen-year-old was diagnosed back in when they were seven years old, and they were diagnosed um, with autism. And at the time, I remember just being like, "Well, this is <laughs> this is obviously from." not my side of the family and I was pretty adamant that I the roots were very clear in that they weren't from from me and then um, my second child during the pandemic the COVID lockdown years they went through a really tough tough time so when we came out of all the lockdowns I took my second child to see a pediatric psychiatrist in the hopes that we could get an anxiety diagnosis so that the school could work with that and then the psychiatrist pointed out that they, well, the psychiatrist recommended that we take our second child for an autism assessment, which threw my kid out and threw me out. And then within seven days, I remember standing, I'd just come into the house, I'd shut the front door 
and we have sunflower lanyards here in the UK for you know, invisible disabilities and I have two of them for both kids and they were hanging on the door and over two and a half hours I stood there thinking wait so <laughs> if both my kids are diagnosed on the spectrum then statistically speaking I am also likely to be on the spectrum does that mean that I'm possibly also autistic and then I even have like the messages when I message my friends and um, my husband like am I autistic <laughs> and then that turned one page and then I'd had a counsellor a therapist since um, coincidentally since the beginning of COVID and I've been talking to her for you know nearly, nearly uh, a year and a half by this point and I said to her I'm pretty sure I'm autistic that's that and she was saying and you've never considered having an assessment you know and I was like well no not really I think it's pretty clear that I'm, I'm autistic so you know that's that that's done and she was very gently probing and saying, you know, if there's a way to get an assessment without too much inconvenience, it might be worth, you know, going down that journey to see where that takes you. And I was like, no, 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 absolutely adamant that I wasn't. And then during the therapy session, I just went, what, you mean in case I'm ADHD as well? And she went, oh, it could be something worth exploring. You know, you could eliminate it, couldn't you? And I was like, oh, no, I don't think I am. <laughs> yeah, and then it all started. It was, um, I think it was, my second child was referred in July 22. And they were assessed in September, October time and diagnosed in December. We went through private medical insurance. We went through Bupa here in the UK because Bupa won't fund an autism or ADHD assessment privately unless it's related to mental health issues existing mental health issues and I had 20 year record on my medical record of dealing with anxiety and depression so I referred to my GP and said let's eliminate this as a cause for all the depression and anxiety that I've been working with for 20 years so we they referred me out to a private assessment center I was accepted just as my kid was being assessed and so by December, when my kid got their diagnosis, I started my assessment process. And um, I don't think I've ever felt more ODHD than after the assessment process. I was just so, so drained. You know, the all the self-reporting, talking about all the history and then having all these little light bulb moments like, oh, my God, they're asking me about this and they're asking me about that. And then the QB testing just was horrible was absolute hell just sitting there at a computer screen staring at this stupid little box <laughs> stupid screen I just wanted to throw out of the window and I, I remember getting home and needing three days to just regulate back to center and like just re-energize myself and be back to whatever normal it was that I thought I needed to be and and then got the official diagnosis as I said on at the end of January last year so it's not even been a year and ever since then I've just been um, consuming all the social media doing all the reading following the rabbit holes and the hyperfixation here and there and just trying to teach myself about myself I think just get that self-awareness um, but I think I reached out to you because on uh, on your Instagram 
there was feedback saying that people hearing your podcast always feel like it's a success story. And at the time I was like, I definitely am not feeling anywhere near a success story. I'm still struggling with a lot of internalized, facing a lot of internalized ableism and wondering how the hell this to navigate it all. Unmask, but also merge what I know about myself with the new mask, you know, the new version of me now. It's all very, uh, it's all very much a work in progress at the moment. I researched into being medicated and um, it's not covered privately. So if I went privately, I would be paying hundreds of pounds a month for the prescription, which we can't afford. So then I went back to our NHS route um, and asked the GP if they could take my diagnosis and then re-refer me to an NHS psychiatrist to see if there was something they could do and now the GP has said that there's no route to do that there's so many people who are being late diagnosed ADHD and it's such a large number of us that they they needed to triage as a GP practice to discuss what they could do and they came out with no solutions they came out with what they told me is they have to put me back into the NHS assessment route so I have to be reassessed again in order to see an NHS psychiatrist in order to see if I qualify for medication. And they said, I've had a letter to say I'm on the waiting list and I will be contacted in due course. So there's no time frame, no time period of expectation on there. But I've been told through word of mouth that it could be anywhere between two years to six years, who knows? And there's a shortage of the medication here in the UK as well. So even if I got through, there's no guarantee that I would get any medication. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. I'm feeling a little bit sort of, could it work? Would it work? Could it help? You know, a lot of what ifs and a lot of question marks um, where I'm at at the moment. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness. All of that is so relatable and so frustrating. <laughs> and if there was ever a way to confirm the diagnosis, it's the exhaustion and frustration that we feel having to navigate this whole process around medication and the medical system. And oh my goodness. And when we were talking about the exhaustion from the QB test, I felt like that also, I actually, I, re I remember when I was talking to the, um, of course, I can't remember her name, but I had a guest who who works with um, QB Tech, and she was, you know, talking about how a lot of that test is to navigate how exhausted you are after it, <laughs> like how much mental load it takes to just hold yourself in one spot and look at a screen and all of the things that they're asking of you. Because I remember thinking, like, oh, I did really well on this test. Maybe it's going to show that I'm not ADHD. But then I like crashed for. You had two days after having to take it. I completely feel all of the frustrations that you are experiencing with the NHS and having to get re-diagnosed because you went the private route, right? Which is, an, again, which is, is that I didn't realize that was something that was common. The idea that like, if you bypass the NHS and pay out of pocket for the, for private assessments that they're no longer taking them, or was there something specific about the, the route you took? I didn't know that either. I think I was under the impression that you could, it was a formal diagnosis with a private assessment centre. Well, the private assessment centre has to be NHS approved almost, I think, in some way, for them to be able to give you this diagnosis. So 
if the NHS has approved the assessment centre, therefore the diagnosis should hold under the NHS. So it, it baffles me that my private formal diagnosis with a very extensive report is not acceptable for redirection into the NHS route, the psychiatry route. That It's very confusing. It could speak to, um, it's obviously another one of those invisible roadmaps that we don't have and nobody tells you about until you hit it and you need to navigate it. And you're looking to find other people who have, you know, the secret code to unlock the map. <laughs> but there isn't one. I think they. it feels almost like they're making it up as they go along at the moment based on what, you know, as the NHS staff themselves have access to. They, they have dwindling resources themselves and they're also struggling and a lot of them working, you know, on goodwill, not not salaries and, and wages and, you know, a well-rested nervous system. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. You know, and, and also the question around what do I, do I need this? How would my life change if I was on the right medication? I think is a question a lot of us have, because even, even if you are medicated, there's a constant fudging with titration. There's so many different types out there. Like I feel like when I first started this podcast and was first diagnosed, that was the question I used to ask all of my guests, which was like, some people say it's been life changing. I'm like, what does that mean? How has your life changed? You know, what is what am I lacking in my life that this medication would help with? And it's a really hard, those are really hard questions to answer for ourselves because I've tried medication. I've tried a bunch of different types and sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it isn't like there's so many factors at play. And, you know, I think if I could say the one greatest change in my own life since was the diagnosis itself and, and that ability to start looking at things and reframing them. And, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to one of your podcasts that you had recorded on henna in the henna world. And that's why I was like exposed to like henna con and you know, all of this stuff around your yeah. profession. And I think these, these interviews must have been before your diagnosis, but it was so interesting to listen to you. You know, it's an interview about the art form and the profession. And you were talking about the award you had won uh, the Asian wedding award and the imposter syndrome you felt and some of the like difficulty around the anxiety of the event. Like it was so, it was so interesting to hear it through the lens of a diagnosis because here it was like, <laughs> you were basically talking about your autism and ADHD in this other podcast where I was like, Oh, the signs are, you know, the signs were there all along. <laughs> yeah. That's just the, glaringly obvious now now that I have the diagnosis like you say it's so it is life-changing having the diagnosis I think because if you're totally unaware like I was and you're t I mean prior to this I was an expert at armchair diagnosing other people I could see autism and ADHD in other people just super clearly I was you know literally oh well that person and this person and this person but but not in myself and then once the diagnosis happened absolutely every single area of my life made sense you know the the awards why I don't like awards why I don't like going up for awards why I was so reluctant to you know be nominated for an award I've realized that I have a really heavy PDA profile there's just any sort of demand on my nervous system any sort of demand on my system just kicks me into gear I go into freeze mode I shut down and I feel threatened. And that basically impacts everything 
a, a normal functioning adult should be able to cope with, especially a parent of two children as well. And um, with the medication, I did so much, you know, because I can't access the medication, it just seems like this dream. So all you do is research it and research it and read it. And I'm searching on Reddit, I'm searching on, you know, social media and wondering which, if I was, the moment I get access to it, I will have some suggestions that I can bring to my psychiatrist about which ones to start with and how to start and, you know, what combination to try. And my key with all this research is, will medication help with the PDA? Because that is the thing that I find most disabling. Um, that is the facet of my ADHD that makes me feel most disabled. And from all my research, I found nothing. There's no medication that will help with the PDA. It can help with the hundreds of thoughts. It can help with quietening the mind. It can help with task transitioning from what I've heard, task initi initiation, things like that. But the one thing that really sort of makes me feel like the biggest failure in my life is the PDA, because that's the one thing that I cannot manage. I've even joked, you know, if I could lobotomize it out of my brain, that would be the one area that I would remove because the rest of it I love. The rest of it I'm I'm quite happy with. I'm quite proud of almost. But the PDA is just it seems like a small part, but it just seems to make every other part of me suffer. But I think that's also because there's all this ableism that I'm I'm yet to reckon with, like internalized ableism that I just cannot forgive myself for not being able to manage. And that's the toughest part, I think. Is the expectations that we have on ourselves, you think? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, the expectation to um, the social expectations, the societal expectations, you know, of a normal functioning, successful human should be able to do these things that I'm struggling with. And, you know, when you're running your own business, you, you've got constant demands on you. You've got your emails coming in and you have phone calls coming in um, from fresh inquiries, fresh business that you should be pursuing. But you're like, oh, my God, my phone is ringing. <laughs> I don't know who it is. I don't know if I have it in me to even answer the call. Okay, now they've hung up. Now I need to ring them back. Oh, my God, I don't even want to ring them back. And the same thing with an email. You're like, if I email them back straight away, then am I setting up an expectation level that I won't be able to sustain? And then if I wait two days, I might have I waited too long? Is two days too long? Is one day better? Is it, you know all this overthinking all the time, just constant pedaling, 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 pedaling. And then this PDA saying, well, you've left it two days. They probably don't want to hear from you now. Or you've left it five days. They don't want to hear from you now. Well, you've obviously failed there. You've obviously done that wrong. It's just this constant noise, constant noise all the time. And it's just, um, yeah, really exhausting. And that's why I'd love to be able to get that part medicated or lobotomized. But yeah, apparently nothing exists. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. It sounds like there's a real overlap between the PDA and the RSD that I hadn't really explored much before. So just to backtrack, if anyone's listening and they're like, what is PDA? PDA is uh, officially pathological demand avoidance, oftentimes called persistent drive for autonomy. Uh, it's a very common diagnosis, which in with autism, and I, it's one of those 
diagnoses that is like nails on a chalkboard for me because <laughs> there's nothing pathological in my mind about demand avoidance, especially when you are living your life on a different realm than a neurotypical. And so a lot of the time it comes with like being very oppositional. And so, you know, in my life, for instance, I absolutely am surprised. Looking back at my childhood, especially, I'm surprised I was never officially diagnosed with oppositional defiant disorder or PDA because I was that kid who you can't make me. And I was the most stubborn child, especially when I couldn't understand the authentic logic behind something, right? So all of those ways in which it was like, well, this is tradition, right? There's, you know, if something didn't like make sense to me, there was a lot of that. And so I'm curious, you know, and it is something I think a lot of us experience in to some degree on a spectrum as well. Where would you say you experience it the most? Is it, is it, you, you're talking about it in terms of like your business or do you think you also experience it with relationships? It's interesting that you um, brought up like how you experienced that in your childhood because in my childhood I'm I masked I was the most conforming child and teenager and student ever and I was hit with that oh potential you know like she's got massive potential she could be anything in the world and and that's actually where the PDA I think is most debilitating my hopes and dreams my goals they trigger my PDA and the yearning, the wanting to be, to achieve those things is quite crushing. It makes me, I feel where other people feel excited and thrilled, like neurotypical people, I wouldn't know, I'm not neurotypical, apparently feel excited and inspired and really thrilled to be going on a, on a journey to pursuing what they want to do. I feel like dread and fear, nausea, you know, really physical reactions. I just feel like it's the most unappealing thing I could do with my life is how it feels. And yet it's a hope and a dream and something that I aspire to. So I struggled when I was in school, you know, when it came to picking a discipline to specialize in, to go to university with. I've always done what was objectively considered the best option. People say, do what you want to do, do what you enjoy doing, do what you love to do. And I've never known what that is because that's where my PDA is most debilitating. What I would love to do, what I enjoy to do, my PDA is telling me it feels horrible to do it, so don't do it. So I was really lucky when Hannah came along because it wasn't on my radar. It came and it clicked and it just, the art of Hannah just clicked and the community was so welcoming and the guidance that was on offer from other established henna artists was so welcoming and so giving and so generous. So it hacked the PDA. It just came in, interrupted it. You've never thought of this before. You haven't had a chance to dream about it. You haven't had a chance to envisage an end goal. So you can just jump in and see where it takes you, which is why I've been a henna artist for 10 years now. But Everything else that I've ever wanted to do, I don't think I've ever even mentally pursued it for longer than five, ten minutes because my system instantly shuts it down. A live example I can give you is I have literally just started doing a counselling course, an introduction to counselling course. I've done two lessons of the first module of two modules of level two, and I've had an interest in 
probably like a lot of ADHD is I have an interest in self-development, self-awareness, psychology, all things to do with psychology and behavior. And I, I can trace it all the way back to when I was 15, 16 years old, but I've never entertained studying it myself or entering it myself. I've been in long-term relationships with someone and supported them doing a degree in psychology with like avid interest and like heated, engaged conversations about what they were studying about while I did, you know, a more generic management degree. And then I think earlier, late last year, my husband said, have have you never thought about doing counselling? It seems like something you would really mesh well with. And I was like, oh my God, he's mentioned it. (laughs) He's, He's actually, he's suggested it, which means that people are starting to pick up on it which means that maybe it's something I can't keep ignoring for the rest of my life and I brought it up with my therapist and my therapist was like you know just see where it takes you and you know everyone's saying just go with a softly softly approach you don't have to commit you just it's just an introduction course you just start it but it's so easy for me every so often if I just start to think about it my ADHD jumps five years down the line it's thinking about when this course finishes the next course that finishes the funding that I'm going to need what if I decide to do a master's where am I going to find the funding from if I do a master's no one can afford to do that and what if I do it and I waste absolutely everybody's time I don't mean any of the deadlines I don't attend any of the lessons I can't even peel myself out of bed and then what if I manage to overcome all of that get all the qualifications and I just decide no I can't do it I've spent all this time and all this money on it and I'm just not going to do it. I'm just going to sit on it. Like I have always done with everything else I've done in my life. What if that happens? Why should I even start? So I've had to dial it all right back and just focus on making it through the next lesson. And like I said, I've had two lessons and both lessons after each one, I feel really inspired by the learning and then I crash into I'm really not suited to this I don't there's not a part of me that is suited to this at all it requires good listening skills and I have hyper empathy which is great and I have you know I can relate to people um but can I sit and listen I'm not sure I can do that I'm not sure I have that in me And I keep forgetting that that's why you learn. That's why you start on an introduction course. You start because you want to learn and it's the journey of learning and getting there. Nobody is there at the beginning, but I just cannot remember it because my ADHD just jumps every, every moment I talk about it. I jumped six years down the line already and talked myself out of it. So it affects, like you asked, like many other areas, you know, relationships and parenting and just everyday life and running a business it affects all of those areas um quite intensively but I think the biggest one that I don't think is taught I don't think I I hear being talked about enough is my hopes and dreams and goals for my life and what I want to achieve with my life that's the biggest one but they build up into the big things don't they I guess so things like running a business like I've recently had access to a business coach and I didn't realize how difficult I find it to just do menial tasks like maintaining a website, creating a newsletter, updating my work social media. I have a personal social media that I'm very happy to update because I don't feel there's any um, 
you know, there's no demand for me to do it. It's not expected for me to update my personal social media, but my work social media, which my business will rely on in terms of getting my name out there, it just feels so much harder to do. So having a, a coach has, you know, has been a body double and someone who can hold me accountable to a little to-do list in my head, in my ADHD brain, I've decided is too much to do. This to-do list is too big. It's going to take me too long. I have a million other more interesting things to do that I would rather do. So I'll do those instead. And then having the business coach pull me in line and and then I realized the to-do list actually only took about an hour of my day, <laughs> um, very little. And I just made it in my head as something massive because my PDA was like, no, because someone's expecting you to do it. You're expecting yourself to do it and you're disappointed in yourself for not doing it. And therefore it's harder to do. You cannot do this. Go do something that makes you feel better rather than this. This is going to make you feel horrible. It's a big, big beast. I feel like I've gone into this big negative <laughs> black hole, but there is hope there because, like I say, I've actually started the course. And it, I think I've started this course and exploring this itch that I've had for nearly 30 years of my life because this is probably the most supported I've ever been in my life and the most self-awareness I've had in my life as a result of the diagnosis, as a result of investing in having therapy. And as a result of being able to understand myself and explain myself better to my husband and my kids, it means that for the first time in my life, I probably am the most able I've ever been to explore something that I want and have wanted to do for a long time. But it's still really, really, um, I'm still finding it extremely difficult. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so relatable in terms of goals, right? Like I think, you know, something I talk about a lot and work with a lot with my coaching clients, because I think coaching and why coaching is so helpful when you have ADHD is the fact that you do, you have that accountability, you have somebody who's going to say like, let's do this, let's focus, let's get back on track. But a lot of the times when I work with other people, and I experienced this in my own life, goals can be really, really difficult to articulate. And it's not just because of our executive dysfunction around planning and organization and prioritization, although that's a huge part of it. But I think you really tapped into this anxiety element of this fear of failure, right? Which is, I have let myself down so much over the course of my life in terms of goals and not achieving them, that it's a real trigger, like it's a real traumatic trigger to have goals in the first place. And I remember like my parents always saying to me when I was younger, when I would skip class and do things, procrastinate in the last minute, throw in something and get like a D. And my mother would always say like, you only put in the bare minimum because then if you fail, you have an excuse for why you failed. And if you really, really worked hard and failed, then that would be crushing for you. So you avoid that. And I always felt like, is that true? Is that what I'm actually doing? And I still don't know the answer to that because there is a part of me that feels like, well, no, a lot of that had to do with like inability to really process what I needed to do and leaving it to the last minute and needing urgency and all of that stuff. But there was that part of me that was like, where does that anxiety come from? And your description of the counseling course is so spot on in terms of like 
how can I trick myself into doing something for fun and not putting this huge amount, uh, you know, not having so much at stake. And we put so much at stake when we go after things, we have to be the best or it's a failure. And I hear that in myself all the time. I see it in my kids. I see it in the, you know, the women I talk to where it's like, there's, it's all or nothing. And we talk about all or nothing with with ADHD, but I also feel like there's something, there's like this core anxiety that you've tapped into around that. And it reminded me of the interview that I keep coming back to. I'm going to have to put it in the, in the um, show notes. It was the Caught Red-Handed podcast where you were talking about accolades and how like difficult it was to receive praise and how it you found it didn't motivate you. It actually made you very uncomfortable because it was like, it was these moments where it was like a standard was being set. And once a standard is set, you immediately kind of freeze around like, am I going to keep that up? Am I going to, what does this say about me? What does this mean about me? And that it was much easier to like not focus on that. And I remember her asking like, well, what does motivate you? Or it was like this sort of very simple question. And you were like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> Uh, but really feeling such a complicated, I think we have such a complicated relationship with things that are otherwise simple to other people. And I think we see that in like, what is fun? What is relaxing? What is rejuvenate? All of these things that we feel like everybody else has a list of surefire things. And we look at them and we're like, those actually produce anxiety in me. And having to redefine these very basic emotions for ourselves. You're nodding, so I'm uh, hoping that made sense. I'm like, I don't know if that's making sense. <laughs> no, it totally does. I just saw a meme uh, literally this morning, and it was it's just a cutesy meme with some cute animals and a couple of captions written, and there were a few options. And one of the options was, you've reached the point in your life where you are doing things for fun because you know how to regulate your nervous system. And I just went, oh, my God. I really don't know how to have fun. I don't know how to have fun. And my my husband with the kids, he knows how to have fun. He knows how to be silly. He knows how to make fun of himself. He knows how to make light of a situation. He knows how to just laugh at things. And I'm always so, I mean, it's always like, why are you so serious? Why are you so serious? And it's all because I can't regulate my nervous system, which means any extreme state away from center and neutral is really frightening. I don't know if I'm going to cope with it. I don't know how I'm going to manage it if I don't cope with it. And all of it is such an unknown. I think that's what PDA comes down to. It's like you say, it's not pathological. It's literally the inability to trust your nervous system because you don't know what's, <laughs> how reactive it's going to be to your everyday stimulus. Uh, everyday tasks that you need to do or that are expected of you. You just don't know. You cannot trust that your nervous system is going to be okay with it that day. There's nothing out there that can stabilize it for us. It's We just have to poke and prod, trial and error it to figure it out. And who wants to do that? <laughs> Well, and I think it's, you know, that's what's so damning about internalized ableism is that it's internalized. There is, you know, it really comes down to ourselves and we're too exhausted to change the narrative and that the narrative has been dumped on us over the course of our life. And yet you're like, oh my God, are you telling me I now have to deconstruct my own internalized ableism? And you're like, I 
can't even do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Curious, like, how much of this do you think is cultural because I you know when I was talking about myself being a stubborn child and how I said no all the time like I feel like there might there is some white privilege in there as a white woman that I can afford to be stubborn and I wonder if you look back at the sort of agreeable nature that mask that you had as a child if you look back at that and think that that you know is another narrative that's placed on an Asian woman in terms of the expectations of you yeah, yes, I absolutely appreciate you bringing this up because I would have just talked and talked and then come back and gone, oh, forgot to bring up this part, which is just obviously a key part of who I am. Um, <laughs> all of it, yes. I recently read a book um, by Sunny Jane Wise. They do uh, the lived experience educator and they wrote a book that posits that we live in a society that is has pathologized neurodivergence and the pathology the history of the pathology of how the pathology came around is rooted in capitalism and and white supremacy and so when i was reading it um because it's written in a way that sort of really baby steps you through the thought process and i suddenly realized oh my god i have fully subscribed to the pathology paradigm i absolutely see adhd and autism as 
a pathological disorder. And that's how I want to see it because that helps me to label it and understand it and research it and go down the rabbit hole and understand it. If you take away the pathology paradigm and you look at it from a neurodiverse paradigm, and it's the case of people deserve the ability to self-determine their own needs and um, self-diagnose how they feel their experience of living is. And they can decide for themselves the best way of functioning for them that keeps their nervous system and their themselves safe. And my mind was like, why have I never considered the neurodiverse point of view? Why have I only ever considered the pathological, the pathology viewpoint? And I realized going back, it's because I grew up in a small coastal town here in the UK and I'm of um, Hong Kong Chinese heritage. And we knew all the other Hong Kong Chinese families within the town. We knew each other. We all spent Christmas, the festive holidays together. Um, We all knew each other by name. We called each other's parents uncle and auntie. And I obviously didn't know I was neurodivergent at the time, but I could feel I was different. But I thought it was because I was physically on the outside. I was not white, although I thought I was white up until I was about 10 years old. I was 10 years old before I realized, wait. I'm not white. <laughs> and I'd obviously just fully submerse myself and subscribe myself to the white community around me. And I'd assimilated. And that's part of my mask as a neurodivergent person. Part of my mask is to be white passing. So I speak and sound like a white, a middle class white person. It's allowed me the privilege to pass between a lot of spaces um, a lot of white spaces and a lot of minority minoritized spaces as well because outwardly I don't I don't appear white but since the diagnosis I've realized my mask is fully subscribed to being a white passing person and I conform actually not because I'm white passing I conform because I want to be white passing I needed to be white passing to survive growing up well, I, I experienced that I was already mentally different. I didn't register that I was mentally different. I just knew that I was different and I needed to be a different version to fit in at, throughout school and throughout friendship groups, um, throughout social groups. So I conformed because it somehow I knew it was essential to my survival. And my parents, much like a lot of their generation um, as first first generation immigrants to the UK, they left the safety of their own country with the invitation from the British government to a better life and a better economy here. And so when they came here, they all hit the ground running and set up their own businesses and they worked and worked and worked and they never had the luxury of having any time to give us the emotional uh, support that children need and to be nurtured growing up so we knew as a generation of kids you know like the latchkey kids we were were very much latchkey kids in in our uh, community as well we knew that the key to family peace was to be a good kid at school because if you're a good kid at school you don't cause trouble for your parents and they don't need to disrupt their hard-working day to go to the school to negotiate in broken English what is going on and try to figure out a solution. So for me, I was the model child, the model student, because I hated 
I hated to see anything unsettle my family at home and their delicate work balance and family balance. So yeah, a lot of it was survival. Um, and I didn't realize until now that I have my diagnosis and now I'm able to look at it from this. I've had my eyes open to this neurodiverse paradigm that not everything is a pathology. Not everything is a disorder. Not everything is an illness. Some of it is actually a very reasonable reaction to the environment around you and the conditions that you've been pushed through. Yeah. So it makes me realize how much of my white passing mask was a reaction to my environment and to my upbringing and to the importance of keeping the family safe and keeping the family stable within its little unit. Yeah, it's it's blown like a mushroom cloud in my brain just thinking about it because then I've also gone gone down the thought of if my parents didn't migrate, if we'd have stayed in colonised Hong Kong, how would we have developed? Would I have still... I wouldn't be as masked like this. I wouldn't have been a white passing person. I would have been vastly different. But then I think back to going back to um, not my parents' generation, but my grandparents and my great-grandparents and thinking they were living pre-colonialist Hong Kong and during the communist era of where China was going through the communist revolution and wondering whether I probably would have thrived at village life, <laughs> you know, the, the need to be, to do everything to survive, you know, the, you're going to need to farm one day, you're going to need to make one day, you need to fix one day, you need to repair one day, you need to feed people, you need, to, and then you live as a village and you live as a community where your neighbours are your family and you celebrate together as a village. And I just think, well, now I realise that my neurodivergence probably wouldn't have struggled so much in a small village rooted into the ground lifestyle. But I'm not in that lifestyle. I'm in this capitalist lifestyle where I'm expected to do a nine to five and utilise my degrees and utilise my education and my privilege and be a success. And that is what I don't, I, I'm not suited to. But then I've also thought about how you know, before capitalism, we have feudalism and in like in even in China, we've got communism. And before that, it was they had an empire there, too. And like, I'm not aware of any school of psychiatry in Chinese culture. And they, even things like um, autism is translated from English to Chinese and in Cantonese, which is what my parents speak. When I talk about autism, it's trans directly translated as loneliness disorder, which is horrible, absolutely horrible and totally inaccurate because there's just very little acknowledgement in my cultural heritage of mental health and mental health struggles. I think there's an extremely high suicide rate, for example, in Hong Kong because it's just it's not addressed at all. Um, that people have have mental health even so my experience of my heritage and race plus this diagnosis has so many points where I just think there's so many more questions now that I have to ask that are so much like way more complicated I also I, I had another train of thought where I thought 
was it only neurodivergent people who decided to take to migrate? Do you know what I mean? Were the people who are neurotypical like, I am safe here in my country. I don't need to leave, even with the invitation of a better promise, a promise of a better future. Was it only neurodivergence who came out? And that's that's why my generation, we have so many common experiences. I, I think there's some validity to it. I've heard that, especially with America, you know, why is there such a higher rate of ADHD in Western countries than in others? Is it because of the acknowledgement? Is it because of the services? Is it because of the definition of productivity? Or is it because a lot of these countries were founded by explorers and, you know, people with ants in their pants who couldn't stay put? And I think there's something to all of that. Yeah, well, Sonny's book was really interesting when talking about the history of the DSM and how that is uh, connected to uh, the history of the DSM is connected to insurance companies and how their relationship and therefore how the DSM grew. And I guess if you're a country that doesn't subscribe to the DSM, it doesn't apply. They don't. Yeah, it just doesn't exist. Well, and so much of the DSM is pathologizing basically personalities that are struggling in capitalist societies <laughs> and a lack of support. And so they're saying, here you are, we don't, you know, you don't get insurance, you don't get any sort of social supports. And now we're going to label that your struggle as a disorder, which is a whole other episode. But I'm so fat. I love listening to your train of thought meander. It's so it's like its own like mandala. <laughs> <laughs> it was very lovely. One thing I wanted to come back to, which I think was really interesting, is that what talking about the masking in childhood and and a lot of us have that trauma, that you know, lowercase T trauma of perpetual self-denial, right? Which is I have my own intuitive self, my own inner version of me. And I am projecting a different version of who I am, right? So it's like code switching and a lot of the self-denial that you experience on a cultural level. And then thinking about how that, you know, the trauma of that over the course of, you know, our whole life destroys our nervous system, but also leading to a sense of PDA, a sense of like pushing. There's some basic innate part of ourself that pushes against that and and is screaming to be let out right after a lifetime of suppressing and masking and then thinking about like how so many of us if not all of us one of the thing we have in common is this fundamental pressure to figure out what's wrong with us right like looking back and always being like why am i deficient what is wrong with me and i always keep coming back to that question because i do feel like it's what separates us from a neurotypical, right? Like you talk about like PTSD, you talk about two soldiers go to war, they witness the same event. One of them comes back with a lifetime of PTSD. The other one is like, nah, it's fine. I, I go back to my life, you know, not just like it's fine, but they're able to adapt and, and others aren't. And so it's like, what is it fundamentally about those two people that is different? And, you know, coming back to this differences in our brains, I think that there is so much to be studied and, and looked into in terms of that lifetime of trauma and what it does to our brains and our nervous systems. And, and I think we're just starting to unpack, like, what is trauma uh, for children? And I think, you know, what you're experiencing in terms of the self-denial and having to be good and not wanting, you know, being so hypervigilant in terms of your parents and yeah, I mean, all of that contributes to a fucked up, dysregulated nervous system in adulthood. <laughs> yeah. 
and this complete inability to trust my own instincts um, all the time because it's dysregulated. It means that I'm often the fiery parent, the one that is a little bit unhinged, you know, the one who feels things really, really quickly and really extremely. And, and I have two smaller humans who also feature on the PDA profile. And if I'm going to fly off with my own emotions, they're going to feel so it's like I have an extra responsibility to learn about my nervous system for their sake. You can't, with a PDA child, educate them or impart knowledge to them in any traditional manner. It's got to be modeling. You've got to be able to do it yourself. And then, like you say, if you can see the authentic justification for why it works, you can witness it in working in your parents then you're more likely to give it a try but if your parent tries to tell you you will not try it you will not do it you will reject it well as a parent one of the things i try to tell myself when it comes to regulation emotional regulation especially because i'm not so good at that is like i can fly off the handle as many times as i need to it's all about repair and regulation so i think the modeling is not i can never show them my rage or my my dysregulation it's i what i'm modeling for them is how quickly i can or not even how quickly how effectively i can repair and come back to myself that's what i tell myself i don't know if it's true or not or but i feel like that's so much more important is like showing them the tools to self-soothe right as opposed to just being like we have to be perfect at all times because that's false eating a lot of humble pie i find you know um always eating a lot of humble pie and going no you're right that was an overreaction on my part i i could do better i can't promise that i won't make the same mistake again but i acknowledge that that was an error on my part and i could <sighs> i'm sorry you know you're just a lot of humble pie <laughs> and learning getting comfortable with the word sorry and realizing that you will feel better it feels horrible that you have to do it but you will feel better once it's done and and yeah, they learn. They've learned. They learn themselves as well. But it, it also it means as a parent allowing them that channel of communication where they can call you out when something's when you've done something wrong. You've not realised yourself, like you say, like emotionally. My emotion, well, my emotional regulation is also pretty poor. So for when they call me out, if I'm still dysregulated, it's very jarring. But then I have to for their sake realize okay it's jarring you're allowed to acknowledge that you're still not out of it yet give it time and then when you can't you come back and say yeah you're right (laughs) (laughs) which i think really is teaching them advocating you know teaching them how to advocate for themselves and to call out just by recognizing And, and i think that's what we're doing now with these diagnoses in adulthood is like we are really developing a language around who we are and how we act in certain situations and that's where I think I feel like that ability to define and understand our our essence is so much more important than medication. I don't know. Maybe there's somebody out there who feels like medication is more important. You know, when we were talking earlier about executive functioning and medication, and one of the things I I have read about that I find really fascinating is that if we take medication, if even if we're not noticing a lot of huge differences in our own lives, if we take it consistently, it starts to improve our sense of self and our sense of self-confidence and our sense of self-trust. 
so that when we talk about goals and never reaching them and never wanting to set them because we always disappoint ourselves, like there's a sense of like, you know, re-steering that ship and, and fixing a lot of that core internalized ableism that we have been talking about, which is we actually start improving our executive functioning in such as incremental ways that we start to trust ourselves around a lot of the things that we've developed fear and anxiety around. Anyway, I don't know. I have no answers, but I have a lot of questions and I love asking them with you. You know, I have one more question if you have time. The you had mentioned at the very beginning of our conversation that you felt like you had kind of shifted to a new mask and I wanted to I wanted to come back to that and and ask you what how would you define the new mask? Um I think the new mask is that I'm still keeping my old mask close to hand. So when I go, when I go, yeah, whenever I go to somewhere like I went to Sunday seminar last week and I was extremely anxious and it was mostly because I'm so used to attending seminars and just feeling completely overwhelmed by the sensory profile of the room and then by the horrible mundane conversations that I was going to have to have with people I've never met before. And, and so I think the feeling was I've got to carry my mask with me to this event, even though it's for neurodivergent people. And then when I'm in a neurodivergent, I mean, I'm pushing myself into increasingly neurodivergent spaces and finding better and better connections to other humans who have similar lived experiences to mine. So the old mask isn't doesn't fit the situation anymore. And so my new mask is sort of, it's very unformed. And it's very new and I'm very unsure about it. So I very much feel like, am I oversharing? Am I trauma dumping? Is this inappropriate sharing? Am I going to really regret this when I get home? That's what my new mask is very much about. All the spaces I go into, you know, and anybody who's, uh, you'll probably relate is, you know, starting this counselling course there's a lot of self-exploration and self-discovery involved and so even in two lessons I've gone okay I'm oversharing okay I need to pull it back okay now I've pulled too far back now I'm just being cold am I being too cold is this my new mask is just very much one step one step forward one step back just still trying to figure out what the heck is going on (laughs) I don't because I have the self-awareness now, I want to be more authentic to myself so that I can survive the day. But at the same time, I need to learn my actual boundaries so that I don't overstep them and cause myself a nervous system breakdown or, or an ADHD burnout. Or there's a, it's, it's a very complicated, I, in many ways, I miss, I miss my old mask because it, it worked for so many years and this new mask is is taking a lot of work to build oh i feel that i definitely feel that yeah there's many times where i miss the naivety of my old persona for sure yeah uh yeah you know the the armchair psychologist who are so confident and certain in everything they knew i really miss that that mask although she was wrong, but (laughs) yeah. 
Um, well, this is, gosh, I could listen to you all day. This was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and now I'm curious, are you, what are your thoughts about the listening to other women's stories? Because I feel like I get so much more out of talking about all the struggle and the fascinating, you know, rehashing and unpacking and all of that stuff. When I had made this call out to quote unquote regular women, there was this part of me that was like, every woman I talk to is fascinating and talented and artistic and also really, really struggling and in a lot of pain. And and I think you articulated it so well, but I also feel like I hear, you know, you're also incredibly talented and so brilliant and interesting. And for me, that's the fun part about the podcast. And you're like, even when I say that, you're you're cringing yeah. <laughs> to hear those words. <laughs> so I'm like, are we just sort of stuck in this hamster wheel of, of negativity bias in our own lives that we'll never get out of? Uh, I don't always feel stuck. I feel like there are moments of light where someone gets through. And I think maybe it's the autism in me Sometimes when you place the logic in front of me and I cannot argue with it, I am forced to acknowledge that there is something to celebrate there. <laughs> and so, you know, things like I've listened to um, several episodes of your podcast and it always is, it's galvanizing, isn't it? To hear someone go through the same and you're like, oh, this person's really accomplished and really clever and really so intelligent. And I feel exactly the same as them. So it's great to hear from it but then because of that negativity bias that we have we're like I am nothing like that person you know I'm nothing like this success story that's on a podcast they've got on a podcast look how successful they are so then I'm like I volunteer myself and now I'm on the podcast so now I've sort of knocked out my own negativity bias by thinking you know I'm not a success I am struggling I'm I haven't done that well but here you you you've wangled your way onto you've managed to somehow find your way on a podcast talking about your diagnosis and your ADHD so there's obviously something there that you're not acknowledging and it'll be something that I obviously will need to slowly process and come around to well okay maybe I am doing all right maybe something is going well something is is doing okay for me these opportunities they some people say I used to say to my husband that he was a very lucky person but luck is never without effort there's some peddling that needs to happen for the luck to occur um admittedly some it feels like there's many people out there who aren't lucky um, no, no matter how much peddling they do they the luck will bypass them um due to lack of privilege and all other circumstances but you know when someone is lucky there is some modicum of effort and skill that has got has has managed to make that happen so yeah this is one of those circumstances where I'm gonna have to go well I will justify it by saying well she was making a call out to real women and so I reached out so I'm a real woman and and therefore that's how I got on and totally disregard the fact that I have done some podcasts before I have put some work into it I've made notes to prepare what I want to talk about I've made a temporary little sound booth so I don't echo I've you know practiced all my angles and lighting first you know <laughs> all these things are things to be celebrated things that I've managed and done on my of my own volition um, without 
without much guidance. And so why can't I acknowledge them? Why am I still sitting here going, oh, but you kind of got lucky, really, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it also comes back to the what motivates us, right? Or what, you know, what we find success in. And I think that there's a lot of those things, if they feel effortless to us, they don't, it doesn't feel like success, right? If things like we have this, uh, we feel like success is always out of reach because success for us is, is figuring out the things that don't come easy for us. And so I think a lot of the time it's that idea of, you know, inner peace is what is successful for us. And I don't think any of us has that. <laughs> so maybe it's why we continue with the negativity bias, because things that feel like they look like success on the outside to other people, really, we don't value fundamentally at the end of the day. And so we feel like we're still left behind, or we feel like we still aren't there yet, wherever there is. But we see it in everybody else because what they've accomplished is something we haven't been able to do. I don't know. It's anyway, it's something I think a lot about and obviously uh, and love talking about. So <laughs> so thank you for entertaining it. And thank you for reaching out. This has been really great. Well, thank you for inviting me on. I feel very honored to be in, <laughs> to be even considered. So, yeah, to even be here is is a bit mind blowing. And I'm not quite I don't think I fully accepted and acknowledged it's happening <laughs> wow uh now i i did you prepare a an alternate name for adhd i did yes based on the book that i would like i said sunny's book um i would reframe adhd as capitalistically challenged so that's exactly how it feels i feel like i am not suited to this system at all i think that might be my favorite one yet does that is that exactly from sunny's book i'll put a link to sunny's book well uh yeah it's not exactly from it's more um there is a box that um, suggests, you know, alternative terms that reduce, you know, to switch from the pathology to the neurodiverse paradigm. And it just seemed to make sense. Challenged rather than saying disorder was one of them. And I'm like, I'm definitely capitalistically challenged. I'm not. Right. Oh, my God. I think I'm going to have to start using that one because I'm always like, is this ADHD or am I just an angry feminist living in? Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just going to say, am I just I'm capitalistically challenged for sure. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It makes so much sense as well when you reframe it like that. Suddenly all of it makes sense. As a term, ADHD is so insufficient. We're not attention deficit, and you know, ADHD doesn't even begin to cover the experience of it. So, but capitalistically challenged does cover quite a lot. <laughs> it really does, yeah. <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, this has been so wonderful. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, Connie. Thank you for having me. It's been truly an honor. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, 
please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness, or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.